Need it? Uh, we come up against external difficulties as well as internal ones, whether they are, uh, you know, setbacks, weaknesses, fears, different things, and courage is a very important topic, so I want to talk to you about that this morning. Um, we're going to see that even a great example of courage in the Bible, Joshua needed the assurance that God would not drop him. Let me begin by giving you an example of courage as we pray that we would receive encouragement from the spirit of encouragement, the Holy Spirit this morning, in Jesus' name, amen? Uh, there was, and, and I, I want to talk to you about how the Lord will not drop you from Joshua chapter 1, but my opening example is this. In this book here, Courage, You Can Stand Strong in the Face of Fear, John Johnston writes about U.S. Senator Edmund G. Ross of Kansas. You probably never heard of Senator Ross. Well, he was of Kansas, and you could probably call him a Mr. Nobody, uh, writes Johnston in his book. He says that no law bears his name, not a single list of Senate greats, mentions his service, yet when Ross entered the Senate in 1866, right after the Civil War from Kansas, he was considered the man to watch. He seemed destined to surpass all of his colleagues, and yet he tossed it all away because of one courageous act of conscience. So let's set the stage. Conflict was dividing our nation in the wake of the Civil War. President Andrew Johnson who had followed Lincoln as the chief executive, was determined to follow Lincoln's policy of reconciliation toward the South. Congress, however, wanted to rule the downtrodden Confederate states with an iron hand. Congress decided to strike first. Shortly after Senator Ross of Kansas was seated, the Senate introduced impeachment articles against the hated President Johnson. The radicals calculated that they needed 36 votes, and they smiled as they concluded that their 36th vote was none other than Ross of Kansas. The new senator listened to the vigilante talk, and to the surprise of many, he declared this, that the president, quote, deserved as fair a trial as any accused man has ever had on earth. The word immediately went out that his vote was shaky. Ross received an avalanche of anti-Johnson telegrams from every section of the nation. Radical senators badgered him to come to his senses. And the fateful day, the fateful day of the vote arrived. The courtroom galleries were packed. Tickets for admission were at an enormous premium. And a death-like stillness fell over the Senate chamber as the vote began. By the time they reached Ross, 24 guilties had been announced, and 11 more guilties were certain. Only Ross's vote was needed to impeach the president. Unable to conceal his emotion, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court asked in a trembling voice, Mr. Senator Ross, how do you vote? Is the respondent, Andrew Johnson, guilty as charged? Ross later explained at that moment, he wrote, quote, I looked into my open grave. Friendships, position, fortune, and everything that makes life desirable to an ambitious man were about to be swept away by the breath of my mouth, perhaps forever, unquote. 
Then that answer came that when they asked him to vote, unhesitatingly and unmistakable, not guilty, said Senator Ross. With that, the trial was over, and the response was as everyone had predicted. A high public official from back home in Kansas wired Ross to say, Kansas repudiates you as she does all perjurers and skunks. The open grave vision that he had became a reality. Ross's political career was over. Extreme ostracism and even physical attack awaited the family upon their return home to Kansas. One gloomy day, Ross turned to his faithful wife and said, Millions cursing me today will bless me tomorrow, though not but God can know the struggle it has cost me. It was a prophetic declaration. But 20 years later, Congress and the Supreme Court verified the wisdom of his position by changing the laws related to impeachment. Ross was later appointed territorial governor of New Mexico. Then, just prior to his death, he was awarded a special pension by Congress. The press and the country took this opportunity to honor his courage, which they finally concluded had saved our country from crisis and division right at the end of the Civil War, after the Civil War, at the beginning of, uh, what do they call that, restoration? Is that what that period's called? Anyone know? Reconstruction, there we go. And this is what, what, um, what I want you to know, is that we all have need of courage, not just like this man, but we all have to make the right decisions in life, even though it may cost us, right? So let's look to Joshua. After the death of Moses in Joshua chapter 1, it says, The servant of the Lord, Moses the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, river that is, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Joshua is the man who will follow Moses as leader of the nation, and his task will be to lead the people into the promised land, something that Moses wanted to do but could not do. God didn't allow it. It was probably a strange time for the people. So much had happened with Moses as their leader. The plagues on Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the revelation of God at Mount Sinai, the wilderness journey, rebellion, forgiveness, faith, mistakes, successes, tests, and challenges. Moses had been there leading the nation through it all, and Joshua had seen it all with his own eyes. Everything had been preparing Joshua for this moment, and everything has been preparing you for this moment. God does not waste anything for equipping us to be the person that he wants us to be. He doesn't waste tests, or challenges, or failures, or successes. Sometimes the failures, the tests, the challenges are the best lessons, right? Let that sink in for a moment. But you want to be like Joshua, right? His name means God saves, and it's actually the name in the New Testament, Yeshua, that is, uh, you know, the, the name that they would have spoken to Jesus in, in his native tongue. Joshua, this Joshua, followed the Lord and made good decisions. Even when he was young, he operated in wisdom and courage. But consider who Joshua was at this point when Moses dies. 
At this time, only he and Caleb, there was only two people alive among the generation that had seen the plagues, uh, you know, attack Egypt as, as God brought those against Egypt. Joshua and Caleb were the only two out of the 12 spies who, you know, four decades earlier when they spied out the land, they came back and they said, we can do this. And the other 10 brought a bad report and said, no, we can't. And fear spread among the people and it prevented them from entering the land a generation earlier. Joshua was a skilled warrior. I don't know if you remember the time when, uh, who was holding Moses' arms up? I think it was Aaron and Hur. Well, guess who was fighting down on the battlefield against the Amalekites? It was Joshua. Even as a younger man, he was a skilled warrior. He was the personal assistant to Moses for 40 years. When Moses would go into the tent of meeting to pray with the Lord, and who would keep watch on the place when Moses wasn't there? It was Joshua. Who went partway up the mountain when Moses was up there for so long? It was Joshua. Most importantly, God had told Moses that Joshua would be the next leader. So in Numbers chapter 27, Moses commissioned Joshua because God had selected him. So the story goes on, and it says in verse 3 of Joshua 1, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory." Now, some of the uh, other translations of the Bible, instead of kind of figuring out, well, what's the great sea? Some uh, translations of the Bible, like the Amplified Bible, the New Living Translation, I think, the Message, they'll tell you the great sea is the Mediterranean. And if there's ever questions about where something's at, they'll give you a better description. This is a map, basically, of the red line is the boundary of King Solomon's kingdom that would come about later. But this is the river Euphrates up here, if you didn't know it. This is the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. And here, of course, is the Jordan River. But their territory spilled over into what is today the, uh, the eastern side of the Jordan River because, you know, two and a half tribes settled over there. So the purple is the area that King Saul reigned over, and then the green is the area that King David reigned over, and then Solomon expanded it even farther, and some maps place it even, even a bigger area of influence. But this was the largest area when Solomon was king, you know, centuries after Joshua. It, it, was, it was the area that God had promised them. So everywhere that their foot stepped, that was what belonged to them as they crossed the Jordan River into this promised land. Now, there's no other real estate that God specifically said, this will be given to, you know, the Irish, as it were. Although they have their island, you know, no one's disputing that. But there's only one place in the world that God gave specifically to the descendants of one person and other people who wanted to come into that people group. That was Abraham and his descendants, and there were others like Rahab and Ruth and many other people uh, who came into, uh, into that people group of Israel. But this land has been promised to the Jews specifically. Uh, the ESV Study Bible has an interesting note on this. It says, the fact that the Lord is sovereignly giving Israel the land does not negate their responsibility to step out in faith and take what is given. I want to ask you, have you stepped out in faith and taken what the Lord has given you? As you read through the New Testament and you see the different promises of God, for the, he's already given you peace. Sometimes we pray, Lord, give me peace. 
And I think we're praying a little off when we do that because he's already given us peace where we have to say, Lord, help me to realize the peace that you've already given me. Help me to walk in it. Help me to meditate upon it. Uh, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. It says in Isaiah. And and, and there's many other scriptures that, that speak about the peace that we have when we trust in the Lord. You are going to have to do some work to receive what God has promised you. Israel was called to walk in the promises of God, and we also have to walk in the promises of God. God's given us a lot, but it requires first that we believe him, and second that we put our best effort into walking in love, trusting God, following his direction, and stirring up our hope. So it's interesting because sometimes, let me just lay this out and you can look at it with me. God does what we cannot do. Now, this isn't a Bible verse, okay? This is Mark's interpretation, but I believe it's true. But if, if you got a scripture that can go against this, but this is my reading of the Bible, is that God does what we cannot do. That is God's part. But God will not do what I can do. That is my part. So sometimes we shift responsibility for things that we're supposed to be doing over to God. And then when it doesn't happen, we feel like God has failed us, and we get frustrated, right? It's a way to get stuck, but we have to know the difference between his part and my part. You can get stuck waiting for God to do what he's told you to do already in his word. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you ever been there? I've been there. I'm working on it right now, in fact. This may take the form of being passive or being ignorant of what God's told me to do or apathetic, just not caring, or immaturity, where I just need to grow a little more. But you can also get stuck trying to do what only God can do in your life. This takes the form of me trying to control a situation or control a person, worrying about it, having anxiety, or being angry when it doesn't work out the way that, that I want it to do. So think about this and say it with me. God's part. God's part. And then there's my part. Say it with me. My part. Knowing the difference and working on your part, right? Uh, I wonder sometimes if it isn't God who's waiting on us to do our part, right? So what was Joshua's part and what was God's part? Let's look at the next four verses and we'll read it. Joshua 1 verse 5 says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Do you mind turn me up just a a smidgen? Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So here's God's part in this. If you took these verses and, and pulled it out and said, what's God's part? As the text says it, it's this. 
No enemy will overcome you the rest of your life. Isn't that amazing that he told Joshua that? I think, of, I think it's also in Isaiah where it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And in the New Covenant, we very much have this. Um, I, I can't think of a specific scripture, but I think of that quote that I've shared with you before in Pilgrim's Progress where John Bunyan said that a Christian can never be defeated in, unless he himself yields. The Lord, it doesn't mean that the Lord is going to give me everything that I want, like gimme, 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 but he's going to give me everything I need where I can take up the shield of faith, Ephesians 6, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. When Paul was facing need, he said that he learned the secret of contentment. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I think this principle is applicable to us. He told, so God told Joshua that God will be with you just like he was with Moses. He said, God will not drop you, and I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. And he said that the Lord is with you wherever you go. And I think of the, the final verses of Matthew's gospel where Jesus said, even unto the end of the ages, I will be with you always. So that was God's part. Here's Joshua's part. Be strong and courageous. <laughs> be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. On the first one, God said that Joshua would cause the people to inherit the land. So there was something that he would do with God's help. On the second, be strong and courageous. He said, pay attention to the Torah. Don't turn from the law. He promised him success. And he said, meditate on that book and gave him the promise to prosper and succeed. And on the last, be strong and courageous. He said, don't be frightened. This is a pretty good situation for Joshua and Israel, but it did require some effort. And we forget sometimes just how good our situation is, even in times of loss or suffering. That with God being for us, with his Holy Spirit guiding us and preparing us for difficulty ahead of time, and him working our situation so that Romans 8, 28 and 29, where he's working it all so that we will be conformed into the image of Christ, so that Jesus isn't the only one who looks like a son or a daughter of God. He's working it out so that we will be Christ-like. Uh, Joshua and Israel needed to keep their mind focused. The work that Joshua had to do was mental. It was emotional. It was spiritual work. And that is primarily where our battlefield is also. It's the inner struggle of thinking, can I do this? Can I follow what the Lord's told me to do? And the answer is yes, you can. He's equipped you. He's filled you. He's preparing the way, and he doesn't you know, want to give you the whole plan you know, all in advance, but I think it would kind of you know, freak us out anyways. I read a little illustration this week talking about how uh, if you're driving at nighttime, you might have a long, long ways to go driving at nighttime. And you only have, I mean, how many feet do your headlights shine out on the road? How many feet would you say? Anyone? Ten feet? Do you think it's uh, farther? Twenty feet? Uh, Thirty feet? However many feet it is. Let's be real generous. Let's say you could see a hundred feet in the distance, which I think is maybe pushing it. And yet you have to go a hundred miles. But yet you can see you know, however many feet, those 30 feet, 50 feet ahead of you, the whole journey for that 100 miles, and that is enough to get you home. 
And that's what the Lord provides for us too. We can't see everything that he has for us, but we can see enough that we, like Joshua, are gonna make it to the promised land. We're going to make it to Christ-likeness. We're going to make it to glory. And it's already begun in our life. Our part is the same. We have to be strong and courageous. Uh, General George Patton, uh, who wasn't always, obviously, an example uh, for us, but many times he was, uh, he said, especially in the area of courage, he said, courage is fear holding on a minute longer. Courage is fear holding on a minute longer. There's different times where we've given up, right? Where we were intimidated, we were fearful, and we just wanted to throw in the towel and be passive, and yet I think this is a good definition of courage. Joshua's told three times to be strong and courageous. The most important task of the things, don't be frightened was the third one, and the first one was you'll lead the people to take their inheritance, but the middle instruction was to meditate on the law day and night and always read what God had revealed about himself already. And I think that perhaps is the most challenging and yet the most fruitful thing for us as well, that as we keep our lives and our attention and all that we are in the revelation of God, this is our source of courage. Now, God's our source of courage, but we can know the mind of Christ by knowing the word, right? We get to know the living word, the risen Nazarene, by the written word. And so it becomes very important that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Amen? Am I speaking truth this morning or am I off? What do you guys think? Um, the most important task is to meditate upon the words of the Lord. This means to repeatedly think about it, to roll it over in your mind again and again and again. In Psalm, I think it's, 84. I could be wrong about this, but it says that God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Um, and you can meditate upon other, you know, other scriptures and just roll them over and over and over in your mind and think about them. The most important thing from this part today is the idea that God does not neglect us. In verse 5, I have some different translations here. The ESV says, God says, I will not leave you or forsake you. The Amplified Bible says, I will not fail you or forsake you. The message paraphrase says, I won't give up on you. I won't leave you. The Living Bible says, I will not abandon you or fail to help you. The King James Bible says, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. And a literal translation says, I will not drop you. I remember when my boys were young, I would throw them up in the air when they were heavy enough to do that. And it was this game of alternating terror and laughter, right? Did you ever play that with your kids? And Becky's mom would always be like, don't do that. You know, she'd get scared too. And I'm just playing with them. And she would, you know, not want it to go on. But the kids liked it and I liked it. And they've done studies actually that, you know, when dads love to play this game, any other dads play that game, right, when your babies are there, that it builds trust, obviously you're not going to throw them way up there, you know, but it builds trust within your kids, and sometimes do you ever feel like you're that baby being th thrown up in the air, and you wonder, is God going to catch me? Am I going to slip out of his hand? In John chapter 10, he says that no one is going to snatch us 
out of the hand of the Father. And I didn't drop my kids, not even once, I promise. And Caleb can testify this morning. That would have ended the game. Neither will God drop you or me. He does not let go of us. And I think perhaps a practical tool to think about this today is think about times in your past when God has not dropped you in the past. And I think about a couple, three things, and I think, wow, those were way bigger obstacles than the things that I'm facing in my life right now. And if God was faithful back then, then he'll be faithful to me right now. And he'll be faithful to me in the future. He won't drop me. King David later on actually does this when he faces Goliath. If you had to face Goliath, you probably would have needed that instruction to be strong and courageous, right? What David tells King Saul when he comes up against Goliath and says, I'm going to take him. This guy's blaspheming the God of Israel. I'm going to take him. I'm going to do this. You know what he says? He says, I've taken down bears and lions before when they were threatening the sheep that I was watching, and I can take down this uncircumcised Philistine, he says. In other words, he's not going to blaspheme you know, the God of Israel anymore. We're set apart. He's not... They don't have the protection that we have as Israel. I, as a small shepherd boy, can take this guy down, and he does. And later in his life, I think it's 2 Samuel uh, tells us that later in life, maybe it's 1 Samuel, but it's in the Bible, it talks about a time when he was out uh, on, you know, he and his men were out and away, and in the village where his his family and where others were had been struck by enemies and they come back and everybody's saying to David you know oh we I don't think we want to be under your leadership anymore and the Bible says that he strengthened himself in the Lord it's an absolutely amazing verse of the Bible because there are times where we have to reach down into the Holy Spirit within us and strengthen ourselves in the Lord there are times where there's, there's your part, right? And then there's God's part. Now, he won't do what you can do. And there are instances, even in the New Testament, where we are told to do certain things ourselves. Like in Jude, where it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. You have to realize that you are a powerful person in Christ. That you are an ambassador of reconciliation. You are a child of God. First uh, John 3 says, we are the children of God now. Do you ever have expectations on your kids where it's like, no, I told you to take out the trash. I told you to watch the dog. I wonder if God, and I believe that he is, is telling us through his word. No, I told you to keep yourself in the love of God. I told you to be strong and courageous. I told you to recruit other spiritual giants around you to fellowship with, to speak into their life and let them speak into your life. I told you to be a friend to others. I told you to serve, to love, to adore, to dwell in Christ. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is for you. He will not drop you. He will not forsake you.